Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about shadow IT. Friends, we enjoy podcasting because we're passionate about computers and sharing the experience of running systems at scale with the next generation. Would you help us fulfill our mission and consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast and offering feedback? Contact us at feedback at operations.fm. So this one got generated by something that I dealt with, well, not totally directly, but impacted us a little while ago. We had a, I work in a trading firm and anybody who's watched a movie has seen, you know, the guys with their pieces of paper screaming numbers at each other, scribble something down. Well, that actually kind of still takes place. It's just all electronic. Everybody makes a trade. At, they have to reconcile. Somebody buys something from somebody else. They both put in electronic versions of those slip and they have to reconcile. Well, it turned out that some of our processing of that reconciliation was done in an Excel spreadsheet that ran on somebody's desktop. Oops. And then they went on vacation. They left it up. It was set to just run every day and do its thing, except then the power blipped and their desktop didn't come back up. Oh. Nobody knew that this is happening in somebody's desktop Excel. And now we're not reconciling our trades, which is bad. <laughs> the markets don't like you doing that. Um, Clearly, you is, need the blockchain, Ken. Clearly, the blockchain is the answer to your solutions. It solves all your problems. Um, but it was, it was, you know, everybody's going crazy. Well, you know, we're getting called from uh, calls from the the markets, going, "Why aren't you reconciling?" Uh, I don't know. And it took a while, and literally called. <laughs> I called in from vacation. Go, oh, you need to boot my PC and open this Excel spreadsheet. Which had those of us in technology on WTF? I would not use the and abbreviations. The, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, we didn't. Um, but it came about because at the time, the tech staff couldn't respond fast enough and, and couldn't do things quick enough for, oh, we need this now. Oh, we can't get to it yet. Oh, I'll just do it myself. Yeah, so Shadow IT... Not telling anybody. Shadow IT more formally is the practice of having a either smaller or rogue or disaffected group within an organization run their own essentially IT shop outside of the control purview, oversight, or even knowledge of the main or central IT group. And this is really, really common. It happens in governments, it happens in educational institutions, it happens in small businesses, it happens everywhere. And it is kind of scary and kind of damaging in a bunch of different ways. And it's kind of unavoidable in others. I mean, your IT services provide service A, B, and C, but you need X, Y, and Z to, to, to be productive, to be profitable. And you know, how do you acquire those services? Yeah, or- yeah and that, that's what happened to us is somebody just decided, oh, they can't get to it. I'll just do it. And they had the resources to do it with. And that, you know, and the scary part is it had been going on for quite some time and nobody knew about it. It, it actually, well, it actually worked. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it sounds like this is probably a solution where I think a lot of times this happens where 
oh, they're really busy. I don't want to bother them with this. I can solve this. I'll just do this. And and maybe even the first iteration isn't something as dependent as what you just described, Kim, but eventually over time, it grows and grows and grows and becomes dependent a dependent process. And uh, then all of a sudden you find out it's you're dependent on somebody's personal machine being up. So I first encountered this phrase 15, 18 years ago. Um, a friend of mine at a university had come from another organization and their central IT group had said no to a whole bunch of things, including um, internet access and a bunch of things in a, at a, I want to say it was Arizona or Arkansas or some, some state in the US and we were overseas at the time. And so I'm a little fuzzy on it for those reasons. But his group was like, okay, well, we'll get our own DSL line and we'll get our own this, that, and the other and our own file server and our own, because they had a budget from, from doing video production work. And they were happily running their own entirely isolated, entirely separate, you know, essentially off the books IT shop, self-supported. And when the central IT group found out about it, they were really angry because you're circumventing all kinds of purchasing controls. You're circumventing all kinds of technology controls like state law, local regulations, all kinds of things. One word, compliance. Exactly. (laughs) But the response was, we need this for this to function at all, and we cannot we cannot fulfill our academic mission due to your inability to process things in yeah. a time frame less than like three years. So it, it went all, all like to the provost. There's a bunch of like back and forths, and eventually it got resolved. But my friend exited during that process to come work with us overseas. <laughs> it happens, and and in every shop at some level or another. I mean, I've you know my previous example is you know, pretty recent, but I worked at another place where they did something similar. They had DSL lines that they had run themselves because the corporate network was too unperformant. And they just like, we need to get our work done and we can't do it otherwise. So a group paid for their own DSL rights. You just said DSL and unperformant in like the same sentence. (laughs) Isn't that scary that the DSL was better? In a lot of universities that I have either been near or worked at, the there's a central IT group and there are specific like either school or college or smaller unit IT groups that serve more directly the needs of that that division. And that is not shadow IT. That is actually a sanctioned structure that reports back up and has its own budgets, but it's under the purview and control of the comptrollers and everybody else who cares about keeping compliance and regulations and all of that that sorted. Um, this is much more about the staff member or staff members or faculty or students or whoever they are that are doing their own quiet things and saying, Hey, you know, I actually could, I could go, go into the data center and plug this USB drive into the back of that server, get more space for myself and then put, you know, people's home directories on it. It's fine. It's like, yeah, but it's n- no stop. Well, there's there's back a in reason. My university days, it was so super common. The main IT structure couldn't provide a service a researcher needed and of course it's a research grant funded uh university so everybody's doing research the researchers would go to their local it folks to see what services they add on top of the central it division and you know they couldn't satisfy the request and so the researcher would go to another department's it group and see if they could do it and they would just kind of you new know, solution shop around until they found somebody that that would say yes, that would give them what they wanted, that would go into the DC and slip the thumb drive back into that server. And I remember being, you know, really super annoyed because you know, 
they would play IT shops against other IT shops to to kind of get what they wanted rather than, you know, work together. And and then I left the glories of the university and started working for the private sector. Whew, boy, did I learn a few lessons. That it's worse in the private sector? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah. <clears throat> One place I worked, we had a group that they had gotten so frustrated, they had their own AWS account that they were deploying resources and that they were literally paying out of pocket for. Oh, man. I mean, zero control, zero oversight. You have you know, zero security because they didn't even think about that. And they were you know, sending up intellectual property into this account. I mean, it's a land-grant university. It's a collection of completely independent research groups that share space and land for the sole purpose of tax evasion, and that's it. (laughs) You're not bitter at all. (laughs) You cannot make me laugh because the COVID shit makes it just makes it sends me in a coughing (laughs) fit. Oh. Sorry. I think I think a big thing of this is attitude, right? I, I think, uh, especially in some of these examples we've given, I think if you trace it back, it's to the IT organization probably having a very poor attitude or response to someone's request to either being just given a blanket no without any explanation, like, well, here's why we don't go off and spam, uh, create our own AWS accounts and why we have things underneath an organization so that we can institute proper controls and that kind of thing. And instead of going, how can we work with you to change our process to accommodate you and just saying flat out no, and not even offering a a, a middle ground or a solution that just encourages that behavior. And I think if, and, and I, I use the collective we here because I I don't, any of us are really not in air quote it anymore. Um, I think it gets a bad rap for having that kind of attitude and sometimes it is, um, it's not like they're doing it intentionally. It's just they're giving a hard task, right? Usually IT is underneath uh, a financial uh, constraint, uh, constraints, and, and usually they're actually it's underneath. It's a cost center. Uh, exactly. It's yeah. a cost center. They live underneath the CFO. They're viewed as a drain of money, so they're always pinching dollars. And so, you know, they, they come at it with a, not necessarily bad intentions, but still, it doesn't give an excuse to be so draconian to the point where people are like, okay, I just, I'm not going to get anywhere with you. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. Well, I, I mean, I 100% agree. It is an attitude thing and a, a political messaging thing. And honestly, it's now not the IT group that says no. It's traditional ops groups that are telling dev groups no. It is saying, the dev says, hey, I want to do this. And the ops guys say, that is way too complicated, way too difficult, way too whatever. And the dev says, I'll just, I'll just use Heroku or something else. And they set up their own account and it works and it's running. Yeah. And now it's bridged into the production network. And you have these unknown dependencies the ops group is trying to deal with. And the security group and the networking group are going, where is this coming from? And it's because politically somebody didn't have the right attitude to say, I'm telling you no for your approach because you're either asking the wrong question. It's an X, Y problem. Or you haven't thought through the fact that we have, you know, uh, a legal compliance issue with disclosing of data or medical storage or personal information or whatever it is. And that is where the messaging is getting lost usually. And the dev team is saying, I need to ship this feature right now. And the ops team is saying, I can't add that complexity to the stack right now. 
and you need some better messaging in between the groups to say, actually, there's a reason you can't do this. You have to, you know, ask ahead of time about these, these privacy or security or whatever controls, because if you don't, it delays shipping your feature or your product or anything for days, weeks, months, if not canceling it entirely. What I learned back in the university space was that a lot of the shadow IT and solution shopping really came around because we as a central IT organization didn't have a good way of working with the researchers, you know, beyond you, the normal students um, and really understanding what resources they needed and having a plan to, to be able to provide that. And I realized that caused a lot of that shadow IT stuff to happen. Storage space being the simple but really primary example um, of you know how does a professor doing research that needs a ton of storage get access to reliable, backed up, durable storage? And I think Brendan is is hit the nail on the head. The other point is that I find working in the private sector, but also occurred in the university space, was getting people to understand you know compliance issues or the terms of their grant or the legalese. Uh, I mean, I worked with one professor who ordered uh, this HPC cluster uh, built out of Xserves. Remember those X-rays? Um, Xserves and X-rays. Of course, that ran uh, you know some variant of macOS back in the day. Um, and the granting agency came down pretty hard because their code didn't run on macOS. <laughs> Did, did this professor just want to have a bunch of X-Serves sitting around? Uh, pretty much. Oh, okay. I mean, X-Serves and X-Rays were cool back in the day. He had recently bought a lot of Apple stock and decided <laughs> to help them out. <laughs> well, conversely... I, think, I mean, it, the mo- my biggest... What I've run into the most is just communication. That, you know, I'm not saying no because I don't want to. I'm saying no because of X reasons. And if you give them decent reasons, a lot of times, oh, well, we'll wait or, oh, maybe I can do this differently or whatever. And like I said, if you just say no, fuck, I need this. I'll I'll go off and do it. And, but now the flip side is a lot of, now with the cloud, I'm finding, well, they can't, I don't, you know, we don't give them the permission to spool this up. We don't give them the permission to connect their rogue accounts to our accounts. We're putting technological constraints on that prevent it, which requires them to come to us with more communication. And then we get a chance to dissuade them from going rogue. <laughs> so the doesn't other, mean they don't try, but... <laughs> yeah, the other part of this, of course, is what happens as an IT shop or an op shop or a DevOps shop when you discover a rogue group in especially a non-technical area that has gotten themselves in pretty deep. How do you help dig them back out? It depends on how mission critical said thing really is. We've had ones where we've said tough and we cut them off and we've had another where we've, we've, oh crap, we really have to have this and we've retasked our own resources to pull it in. Um, I have right now one of the guys under me whose sole task is taking a rogue piece of, of stuff and reworking it to bring it into our into our system. It was deemed 
too critical to let go, but it was off developed by another group without any oversight. And that's important. Even if you leave it exactly as it was, now that it is understood and documented oh God, no. and under under the purview of people who are keeping tabs on things, at least you at least it's quantifiable now, whereas otherwise it's invisible and it's in that, that shadow where you don't know what it is and you don't know what landmine you're going to hit next. The one thing you can't do is just leave it out there in whatever state it is because they're not developers. They're not, you know, for the most part, they, they, they're not going to do it the same way. It's not going to be as robust. It's not going to have as much reporting. It's not going to be as easy to, to monitor. You, you got to get controls of it. The, the amount of control you exert onto it, onto this IT, shadow IT, you know, there's no hard and fast rule on anything. It's, you know, depends on the environment, depends on what it is, depends on the resources you have to, to take control of it with. But if you just leave it, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's bad. Y- you've got to, yeah, you've got to try and take control of it because uh, otherwise, not only do you have an issue you know, that's, that's going to impact you in the future. You kind of also signal as well, like, Hey, there are no consequences for doing this. Uh, so keep doing it. And and I'm not saying that you should do something bad to people, but I mean, it it should be clear, like, Hey, please next time come to us. And again, this is the whole messaging thing or, or attitude thing. Like come to us next time and let us work with you on making a solution versus you going off on your own. Because as you mentioned, Ken, I mean, I remember uh, in my wayward days, I loved building my own PCs. I hated manuf- pre-manufactured machines. You know, I, I had a, a, a war against Dell, so to speak. Like I was, I, yeah, I still I, do. I always build my own machines. Well, I, I would even I, like to the point of like when we were in high school, we were trying to convince the school to let us build our build the machines for them. Right? It's like you, you know that was very short sighted of me because I didn't understand. Yes, technically. A, a, a custom built machine is superior, blah blah blah. But I didn't have the support infrastructure to support a school's computer lab, right? Dell does. Dell can offer yeah. within four hours support, or you know, gold support, or whatever, to where they they can have somebody there with that part and replace it. There's no way I could do that. But I didn't have that experience yet to understand. That's the reason these choices are made, and that's the same thing happening here, right? People will choose Excel over why would you? Why would I need a, a database and 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 uh, applications that run on servers that are fully redundant and that kind of thing? Like those are all choices that are made by people who understand those problems. And when people who don't design, they leave out a whole lot of things and and just leave you in a bad place. Yeah, one of my early lesson working at the university, and we were working with a professor that was about to join the staff. And he, of course, he was going to do some research and he did a spec out you know, his own Beowulf cluster and he had all these grants and stuff to pay for it. You know, fine, whatever. Uh, you know, I set up everything that, you know, when he got on board, contact us, um, we'll spec out with our usual vendors and this is the process to, to get going. And so when the professor started and got on staff and things ready to go, um, I got the message that all of his equipment had arrived and was sitting waiting in uh, a closet somewhere. So I found the closet and found that he had ordered, like, there was 21 of everything. There were 21 cases, there were 21 motherboards, there were 21 CPUs. And we looked at him and we said, 
you think we're going to hand build your Beowulf cluster? And we said no and walked out. Which is the right thing. And I'm a big fan of natural consequences. Like, I don't want to be punitive to anybody anytime, but there are natural consequences that come from making poor decisions. And that's one of those cases where it's like, I can't support this. And if, if they say, well, why? I, you're just saying, no, you're, you're being, you know, obtuse and whatever. You say, no, like, you have, hopefully, they're all the same revision and the same spec of motherboard. Hopefully they're all the same stepping of the microcode on the processor. Hopefully they're the same, you know, versions of the power supplies, but I don't know that I don't have service contracts in any of this. I don't have the support hours to go dig up firmware patches when things go wrong. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty sure he got a grad student to put it all together for him. And yes, it will run, but the long-term maintainability isn't there. And that's the, a lot of people will push back and say that Dell costs twice as much as just the part list for all the things in the Dell. And it's like, yeah, Dell Not has to pay order in bulk, but Dell has to pay their service engineers. Well, they have to pay their firmware folks. Exactly. They have to pay all their support people and they have to make a profit. And I don't begrudge them any of those pieces, but you have to understand that when you're running something that has to be reliable or is a larger scale thing, you there's reasons these costs exist and that has to get communicated correctly. Otherwise, you're going to have real problems. And I remember fighting that same fight uh, when I replaced IMAP servers at the university. They were old. They needed to be replaced. Um, and, you know, we spec'd out, or other folks, you know, spec'd out the, the Dell Intel replacement equipment. And, of course, they only spec'd out one just to look at the quote. And, of course, the, you know, to you rack mount store server with lots of storage and ram was super freaking expensive and of course you know oh, oh no we have to we have to hand build these or do something cheap uh we, we can't afford to replace the the dell equipment and i got i got po'd hey this is university war story episode um and i went back to my office and i picked up my phone and dell had at that time a fast action response team to sell you crap and i'm like pass me to the fart team and I'm like, I spec'd out like nearly identical hardware. <laughs> Please don't tell me and that was their actual name. Pretty close. I spec'd out the exact hardware, and they were, you know, super excited because I was ordering this Mac Daddy server, and you, know, I could tell they were excited about them. And you, know, okay, you know, what's the total for that? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. What would the total be if I ordered fifteen of those? And there was dead silence, and I could hear the keyboard surfing. And I took that contract and proposed it back to the committee because it's the same hardware we wanted, but you know, doing it professionally, going through the channels, we got real pricing that that we knew we could work with, and run our IMAP servers on quality equipment. Yes, I called the fart team. <laughs> so, circling back to the topic at hand, it is not just shadow IT that this exists in. I've heard stories from friends in places that scare me about having shadow HR departments and shadow procurement departments. So it's like, you don't want to go through the actual purchasing process, you know, an organization because it's either cumbersome or you don't have a good, a good, a good relationship with whoever is controlling the budget, but you have this grant or you have this money, you have, you know, income that comes in from a fee from something or whatever it is. And you're like, well, I can just buy the stuff off the books or off the, the central books and it's about control and manipulating who has control. It's it's politics in how you, you build your fiefdom. 
but it's scary because there's a lot of these pieces that are centralized for, as Jack mentioned earlier, regulatory reasons, compliance reasons, legal reasons, reasons that you don't want to get in front of a judge or be on the front page of a newspaper and say, oh yeah, such and such company, um, whoops, we have mishandled either federal dollars or these other things or whatever thing it happens to be because, oh, I was trying to save some money. Yeah, we can't reconcile our trades at the end of the day. It's not just that doesn't work out. There come fines. There can be, oh, we're dropping you from this this board. It can really have impacts. And there's reasons why we say no. There's reasons why we want it under our control because then it's more redundant. Then it's, then it's not somebody going on holiday causes it to fail. And, you know, it's, it, you got to give the people reasons. You got to make them understand it's communication. It's socialization. Okay. So you're going to get it working faster, but you may cost us more in the long run. And if you're going to do a proof of concept, especially something that is how quickly can I validate if this is a viable approach? That's actually generally a good idea. Before you go and spend a bunch of money or you get involved like everybody in in every department to send a representative to a meeting and waste hours over weeks. So yeah, can this work? Can I build a a workable, provable example to know that this this path has validity? But you take that to the committee to say, hey, this does work. I think I can do this better, faster, cheaper, more whatever than everybody else is trying to do it. But you have to take this to centralized authority or centralized something so it can be documented and recorded. And so when you leave the company or you get hit by a bus or whatever happens, it keeps on working. The regulators know about it. Everybody else knows about it. You have to do that step. Um, I wish people would quit planning for when I'm hit by a bus. Well, I've worked on a bunch of shadow projects or not shadow projects, but (laughs) kind of skunk work projects. Like we're trying to validate something and we know that politically, if it becomes known, it's going to get taken over or it's going to, other things will happen. And so you do the initial research work. You do the initial legwork to say, is this even possible? And you do it very, very quietly. But as some intelligent bosses of mine have said in the past, there is nothing quite so permanent as a temporary solution. You have to be exceedingly <laughs> careful that while you're building that thing, it never becomes a dependency on anything else. Because as soon as it is, you're stuck. And now you've, you have built Shadow IT. I recently heard, this is an organization running on a bunch of proof of concepts. And that sucks. And it's a lot of work to undo that. So the two tests, since a big part of, that's a big part of what I've inherited, is there's a, we have a mountain of Shadow IT. And we have this completely new environment. We're moving from bare metal into AWS. I am not giving anybody the ability to build. That is a pivot point that you should take maximal advantage of. My, my, our previous CTO always said, don't waste a good crisis. And we're in the process of setting up, um, the ability to spin up basically sandbox accounts for people. Oh, you need to try something. Here's an AWS account, build it in that. And there will be no wiring it in to the infrastructure at large other than, okay, you need some data. Well, you can get, you can connect the dev and get, you know, test data and stuff like that. There will be no wiring it into the production stuff. 
Um, we're really now we're also taking the tact of socializing why you know no we're not going to let you build this as is and here's why and you know examples from the past remember when that guy went on vacation and everything went to hell we're not letting you do it that way anymore yeah i, I think that's a, a large part of it is that you you try to prevent people from just doing it in the first place, but then also be communicative about it and say, look, we, 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 this is why we're not doing it and offer easy solution or easy ish solutions. Like instead of doing it on your laptop, do it in this dev account on AWS. Yes. It's not as easy. It's not as fast, but here's why again, because this replicates prod. This is how uh, you'll have to do it in prod anyway, yeah. yada, yada, yada. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's the best way to handle it. And our biggest reason we're going to get away with it now, too, though, is change in management. Previous management was okay with it. It was, I want the results as fast as possible, and I don't care how you get there. And the new management is has a different philosophy. <laughs> I worked at a small org a bunch of years ago that the management had turned over, and I was brought in by new management about six months after management had turned over for lots of reasons that are unimportant for this. And this is the place that had been buying network equipment on eBay used. Oh, and hey, just my house of, is full of that. God, that just, yeah, my house is too. But that, the idea of a corporation doing that is, that's, that hurts. And nothing had support contracts. There were no consistent versions of iOS running on the switches. They were at least almost all Cisco almost so there was some uniformity but it was terrifying and new boss comes in and goes to the cfo and says essentially look this is an incredibly ridiculous problem you know a lot of the networking woes that we have are because we have a single flat network that everybody is on like the printer in your office is on the same network that everybody else is on like one flat vlan across the entire organization we need to start fixing this. And the first problem is there's no documentation. So essentially it was shadow IT run by the IT director who had been hiding it from the rest of the organization without telling them that all of these things were the way they were and not enforcing controls or compliance or documentation or anything. And part of my tasks was coming in and helping normalize and clean up and just get an understanding of what was there. So part of the transition out of shadow IT is rigid documentation, get network probes, get other things to go explore and find out what's calling what, where, where is their traffic? Yeah. Are there rogue DHCP servers? Are there rogue, you know, other servers on the network, identify them, walk the cables, find the servers, walk the, you know, the AWS um, transit lines, figure out where things are. So you can then either turn it off and see who yells or do packet dumps or whatever it is to start seeing what is going on here? Because you have to be able to gain that initial control as you're socializing the reason you're changing things to say, hey folks, things have been bad before. Here's a bunch of examples of how it's bad and why it's bad, and we're turning that off. I've got some pictures of some cables that you don't want to walk. <laughs> so in my current organization, we have started the practice of, of having regular scheduled innovation time which is where you can work on a project that somehow benefits the company, um, but not your normal day-to-day -day sprint work. 
And this has led to a number of really useful process, uh, projects and a number of really interesting problems. And, you know, one of those really interesting problems is how do we get developers that have a good idea, a safe place to stand something up that's reproducible? Um, you have that sandbox account. And I think being able to carve out sandbox accounts is definitely in our future. Right now we have like one, I think. Um, but it's a safe place that that folks can gravitate toward to set things forward. But a lot of our uh, work toward improving culture and building better processes is still you know, taking steps. So we have the tools to, to get some of that automation in place, but there's not a lot of familiarity with that we're you know, building that, that training around. Uh, but one of our hard and fast rules is that nothing from a non-production account may interface with a production account or vice versa. No data may cross that boundary. And that has been one of the wisest, you know, single rules of just don't do this that I think is, has really kept you know, the shadow IT stuff down and kept our, our you know, security stuff in order um, with these new projects and with new development going full steam ahead all the time. Yeah, we've implemented pretty much or we're, are trying to implement the same thing of development is pristine. You don't touch it. You don't get access to it. You can't connect to it. If you have to, there's processes, but you can't build something on your own that's going to pull production data. You can't. We will provide acceptance and, and development versions of the data that you can there's development versions there's development. this process that you can apply for yep. to get production data but not actually access and now shifting shifting paradigms has is it's in process we're not there yet and it's hard because there's a lot of entrenched processes and other teams that you've got to you've got to get them to break so one of the troubles is these are all technical solutions to a social problem or technical solutions to technical problems that also have social um, backgrounds. There are two things that I've seen in organizations that do help kind of break down that social barrier. And the first is um, it's using the carrot and not the stick. So you set up uh, every two weeks, you have a tech talk and you invite people to show off the cool things they're working on. And especially the people who are like, ooh, I found this really cool hack that, that saves me a bunch of time. They'll get up and they'll talk about it. And you can sit there and go, oh, wow, they're doing things that I, I didn't know they were doing. And A, it socializes the idea. So you can, people get excited about sharing kind of the cool things they're working on. And these don't have to be polished presentations. You don't, this don't have to be like, I'm presenting to the board or I'm going to an external entity. This is just a, hey, I'm going to get up and talk about this for a little while and maybe have a five minute demo. And I've got three slides I put together the 10 minutes before the talk. Even that level of informality can get the, get the conversation moving. And then you will find out about some of these shadow projects or other things that are a problem without having it be like a big issue. Um, the other thing you can do is have kind of an airing of grievances standing meeting to say, hey, everybody who has a problem with the way we're running things, like, or for my team or have office hours or whatever it is, come and talk to us. Come and tell us, like, what it is that we're, yeah. what things are we not doing that you need? What are, what are the, yeah. what are the roadblocks? 
If we're not providing what you need to get your job done, let us know. Doesn't mean we will do it, but maybe we'll maybe we can provide you an alternative. Maybe we can provide you a different method. Maybe maybe we should be providing that service and we'll fix it. Well, if, if enough people have the same problem, now it is something we need to do. Like if, if it's one group out of a thousand or one person out of a thousand, it's like, yeah, you're not big enough fish really unless it's, unless it's a lot of dollars at stake. But if it's 40 groups out of a thousand, 50 groups out of a thousand, it's like, ooh, that's starting to get large enough that the people who aren't complaining probably also have this problem. Maybe we need to find a way to address it as much as we don't want to for time complexity, staffing, priority reasons. And again, it goes back to communication. And one of the challenges I have is also working with different cultures in doing those same sort of, you know, bring forward your grievances, give us some feedback. Uh, why are you using a different solution than what I am proposing you know, as, a, as a global or corporate-wide solution? And that's where, that's where I've had some trouble um, in my career is figuring out you know, how do I work with this team that's in a completely foreign time zone and works has a very different culture than I do and sort of bring them into the fray or be able to listen to to the ideas they have and figure out what's good and what's not. How do I help them achieve their goals that in a still a compatible way that allows a whole organization to move forward? I've got a team implementing their own tracing standards and tracing solutions that are different from the tracing solutions that I am proposing at, at, at sort of the division corporate level. And I'm trying to figure out how do I work with this team to, to not run their own shadow tracing uh, setup, but to work with us all so that we can have one tracing setup. And if you're familiar with tracing, if you don't use the same unified tracing pipelines and, and back end, then you don't get the entire trace into the same solution. Your traces are broken or they don't have all the data, which kind of makes them mostly useless. Um, so that's one thing that I find, I find that I've struggled with a lot is, is working with people all over the world and bridging those realities together. Yeah. And it's important, especially in those cases to say, or to realize that it's not that they are, they're, they're wrong for doing their own thing. It's, what are they not getting out of my proposed solution? What did we miss when we were doing an architecture review that they need? Because if they're building their entire own setup, it means that something was something was missed in translation. Either they don't understand a piece of how our implementation works, or we didn't understand one of their needs. And you have to come together on that. And that's a social problem. Ah, oh, social problems again. They're hard. They're harder than they're technical hard. problems. And yet to work on those social problems, I meet with this team every sprint. We talk about progress. We talk about issues and bugs. And, you know, we hash forward. How can we build a proof of concept over here? What problems are we having over here? Can we replicate the same problem in the new system? And you, how do we make some forward progress together? It's been slow. It's been hard work. But I think we're starting to make some progress. Now, you mentioned earlier, we, and we've talked a lot about the carrots. What about the sticks? Has anybody been able to has anybody been able to use one, get away with it, or it gone up the chain to where the hammer came down on somebody for it? I have been working some stuff from both the top and from the bottom. Uh, so in my position, I report to uh, the head of engineering of my subdivision, 
And you know, there comes a point where you know I need things to work this and this and this. I need these teams to be within these bounds. And that person will help me you know, top-down manage that situation. But I just don't want to give them you know, the orders from on high. I also want to work with that team, work with their engineers at the bottom layer and make some JIRA tickets, point out some exact areas where we can improve and sort of you know, push from the bottom up too to try to kind of meet in the middle. In my experience, there's only two sticks that ever work. And that is senior management or legal. And they are able to apply the appropriate pressure in the, no, you may not do that and actually have it stick. Because um, once, once a lawyer gets involved and the lawyer says, as a lawyer, I am telling you as a mouthpiece of the company, you may not do that thing. Once they do it again, they get fired and it sort of solves itself. But you have to have the backing of senior management if you want to be able to use the stick instead of the carrot. Because again, this is a social problem and just telling them, no, we've already demonstrated doesn't work. If you just tell them, no, they go build shadow IT. So you have to have somebody at a high enough level who is on your side, like fully on your side and able to understand the problem, understand why this is an issue and be able to deliver the no in a firm but friendly enough way to say, no, you will not get this. Do not try. And that requires yeah. good management being in place, which, again, hiring is hard. Well, it also requires having a good relationship with said management. And a lot of especially individual contributors don't see the value of playing, quote, politics. And so they try not yeah. to get involved in all that sticky political things. And it's like, no. The human part of work, the human interactions we have at work is one of the more important things. And especially junior engineers don't get that early on. They don't understand why it's important. So you have to start cultivating those relationships early. So when you do need something from senior management, you can walk into somebody's office and say, hey, you know me to be solid. Technically, there is a burning issue. I need your support. And they have to be able you have to be able to be confident. They're going to say, I've got your back. And they're actually going to do it. And that, I think, is how you work together at scale in a large corporation that's moving fast in an, an agile methodology, perhaps. And, you know, walk together sort of in lockstep and keep the ability to move fast and innovate as well as, as do so in a safe, compliant, uh, controlled manner. It's finding that balance has... has been one of the hard and rewarding things that I've done in my career is to to figure out where that balance is and how to take advantage of it. Well, and that's the thing. It is a balance. You can't have all of one or all of the other and make it. And you've, you've got to find that point. Unfortunately, that means one side or the other doesn't get everything they want. And it means working that human aspect to figure out, you know, how can we move forward together? And if you're practiced at that, if you're practiced at that, it becomes easy and fast, right? Just like Agile Tickets. <laughs> and other lies we tell ourselves. <laughs> it's a new episode. One size fits all. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. 
I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Fast action sales team? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs>